We on? Woo! Wow. <clears throat> well, my name is Andrew Gross. I am an elder here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, and uh, very honored and privileged to uh, this year sort of wrap up the year of 2009. And as, as uh, those of you who've been around our congregation for more than a year know, Every year, Pastor Jim casts a vision for us that helps sustain us, strengthen us, give us direction for the year. Uh, he, he does that by giving us a theme, a theme message, the beginning of the year, uh, early in January, and then it stays with us uh, through, through the whole year. And in just two weeks from now, Pastor Jim, even though he's, been, he's a, still on sabbatical, still on sabbatical till the end of February, but he's going to step out of sabbatical for just a moment and two weeks from now, he's going to uh, give us the next theme message for 2010. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, very excited about, about hearing what Pastor Jim is going to share that day. Uh, but for this week and next week, I'm going to try to help us wrap up the year of 2009. And, and who remembers, who's been around this year, who remembers what our theme uh, has been for 2009? Year, I think someone said the year of bounty. No, um, is it? Yeah, that was a few years ago. 2009, yes, year of opportunity. And I guess Eleanor discovered a year of opportunity. It's been a year of opportunity. Wow, oh my goodness. Always remember the year of opportunity now. That's great. Uh, um, that was good, Nate, by the way. That was really that was slick. It's good. All right. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, the reason I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up for us, it's, uh, Pastor Jim doesn't just give us a theme message just uh, to make us feel warm and fuzzy. He gives us a theme message to help guide us and nourish our, our spirits throughout the year. And it's up to us to, play, to pay close attention to that theme, uh, to, to try to find out what could God be saying to us? What could God be doing among us? What could God be doing through us to try uh, to work in us through this theme message? And so uh, I want to talk about this year of opportunity. Uh, you know, Pastor Jim pointed out a year ago, and you, you can go back online. It's super easy now to do this. Go, go to our website, bcfnations.com, and you can uh, you know, download his, uh, his message from just a year ago and find out, uh, listen to it, find out what it said, and it's a, a great thing to do. But one of the things Pastor Jim pointed out, this year opportunity comes from the Latin, uh, it comes from the word port, and if you remember, the banner we had up here for almost the whole year was this beautiful ship setting sail, and the word opportunity actually speaks about that very precise moment in the old days when the sailors had to really worry about this, when the tide would come in, and uh, the sailors had to be prepared and ready to launch their ships just when the tide came in. And they couldn't, if, if, if they uh, messed up, if they weren't quite ready to launch the ship when the tide came in, then they would lose the opportunity. The opportunity would be gone. So that word opportunity, it's a very powerful word. It, it, it sort of speaks of seizing the moment, of jumping in and grabbing the moment. And uh, so I want us to consider some questions. Uh, have, have we, as individuals, have I, have you, have we 
have we been seizing the moments that God has been giving us this year? Have we as a community been seizing the moments that God has been giving us this last year? Uh, Have we even been spiritually alert enough and awake enough to be able to seize those moments? Uh, And and I have to admit, as I've been preparing this message and I've been thinking about myself, have I been seizing all the moments God's laid before me? I I have to be honest, I'm not sure I really... I really have been seizing all, the, all, all of the moments God has, has been putting uh, before me. You know, and sometimes we don't seize the moments, we don't grab the opportunity God has for us, because a lot of times we've been medicating our own pain. Uh, you know, life has all kinds of pain in it. We go through painful seasons, and sometimes we sort of put ourselves in a spiritual stupor where we're, we sort of let our brains kind of fall into this fog where we're not even aware of or alert to the the opportunities God has uh, before us. We kind of put ourselves in a catatonic state. You know, it's the same feeling you get if you've been watching TV all day or for many hours in a row, and after a while, you know, nothing sort of phases you anymore, nothing excites you anymore, and you're just sort of, you're not exactly asleep, but your brain might as well be asleep. That's what I'm talking about, that sort of spiritual sleepiness. And, and, and in that state, we wouldn't even know an opportunity if God were to, you know, smack us on the, on the head with it. So, some of you might be saying, now wait a minute, Andrew, that's not very fair to even force me to think about that right now, because, uh, Andrew, you're, you're underestimating the real pain I've experienced in my life in this last year. And, you know, I, I know personally, directly from many of you in this room, actually, that 2009 has been a year of incredible pain for many people. For for many people in this room, events in the year 2009 have have actually shattered you, have actually shattered your your families. And and, and it's been hard. 2009 has been a hard year for for many people in this room, I know, uh, directly from you. Um, even as our whole church community, uh, there's, there's been hard things we've, we've gone through. And uh, even, like, uh, good things, you know, Pastor Jim being on, on sabbatical for a long time, he's, our, he's been a, just a wonderful, beloved leader and, and offers so much comfort uh, and, and leadership in this congregation. And some people feel sort of spiritually disoriented without him here leading all the time. That's, that's hard. Um, so... So you might even ask, well, how could 2009, how can I even consider 2009 a year of opportunity? What sort of opportunity has that been? It's just been pain for many of us. It just feels like it's been hard. Hard things have gone on in 2009. How can I call it a year of opportunity? And, you know, that, that's actually a really important question to, to wrestle with. It, it would be sort of a it'd be kind of denying reality if we just kind of passed that by and, and, and didn't wrestle with that problem. How, how could it be a year of opportunity if it's been a year of pain, if it's been a year of struggle, it's been a year of difficulty? How can we call that, how can we call that a, uh, a year of opportunity? Um, and, and it's important to wrestle with because, you know, there's, there's some, sometimes people will, uh, they, they, they sort of build up, they, they come to God with all kinds of expectations about what, 
sort of opportunities he has for them, and it ends up being uh, a disappointment. And then they walk away not just disappointed about the opportunity, they end up disappointed with God. And that, that's, that's devastating. People's faith can be devastated when they're expecting one thing, expecting God to move in a certain way, and something devastating happens. That, 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 can, that can ruin a person's faith, and they can grow bitter. So it's important for us to wrestle with this. And in this wrestling, that's, that's, that can be a real test. Do we have real faith? Do we have authentic faith? And that's why I have... Get the PowerPoint going here. That's why I have uh, entitled this message a very strange... Given it a really strange method, or message, uh, a title to this message. And that's, you know, maybe, maybe some people, uh, you know, they saw this was going to be a title and conveniently said, well, I think I'll be visiting some relatives on this weekend. I I know it's Christmas, but... uh, Death is the path to life's opportunities. Death is the path to life's opportunities. So I want to dive into this problem. This problem. How can we call it a year of opportunity if if it's been a year of pain and difficulty? Uh, You know, so much of the solution to this problem depends on how we interpret the pain in our lives. It depends on how we interpret the pain in our lives. And I want to start with one of the most famous examples in Scripture of where there was a difference of interpretation between the human interpretation and God's interpretation. All right? So, set the scene for you guys. Remember the Israelites. All right? Famous story. They were uh, delivered out of slavery in Egypt by God's amazing, miraculous hand of power. And, uh, and this, is what, uh, this is how they began. Let's see. This is how they began to... Whew, all right. This is how they interpreted that experience just about... This was, I think, I believe three days after they saw the Red Sea part. And they... Uh, were delivered, they escaped from the Egyptian oppressors through the Red Sea, then they saw the Red Sea miraculously close back in on their enemies and uh, never saw the Egyptians again. This is how they interpreted that. This is what they're saying to, to Moses, and they're saying this about God from Exodus 16. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. That was their interpretation of what they were going through. And, 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 you know, you might say for some good reason, and, and from their perspective, they weren't sure where their next meal was coming from. It was hot in the desert. They'd been in the desert for a few days. They weren't sure where they were going to get water. They weren't sure what was next. On and on and on. Even though they'd seen God's miraculous hand powerfully deliver them, uh, questions began to arise. Now, look at the difference between this interpretation, this human interpretation of events, and God's interpretation. Forty years later, this is what God said, or this is what God says through Moses uh, after they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, from Deuteronomy 8.3, He, God, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Anybody see a difference? Slightly different. Same, same situation. They're both talking about the hunger, the, the real hunger, the real pain uh, and the hunger that the Israelites were experiencing, but God was interpreting it completely differently than the Israelites were interpreting it. Um, so, basic premise here, there, there's, a, there's a distinct difference between our interpretations of trials and God's interpretations. And my question for us is, what makes the difference? What makes the difference between how we're going to interpret these situations? Uh, well, I, I, want, I want to point out here, with, with this, this uh, previous verse from, uh, from Deuteronomy here, that God sees something ultimately redemptive in these trials, even when we don't. And, you know, the Israelites interpreted the hunger as a death sentence, but for God, the, the hunger was actually full of divine purpose. He was trying to change the Israelites from a people who did not believe into a people who did believe. He was trying to change them from people who did not obey God into a people who did obey God. And the only way to make this happen was to bring them to a state of desperate dependence. Because when, when we're in a state of desperate dependence, that's when we're willing to feed off of the true heavenly food of God's word. That's when we're willing to feed. Our souls, you know, uh, and may, maybe you've experienced this at Christmas, there's so much good food and you're just stuffing, 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 and, and you feel so full. Uh, and, and in one sense, you're, there's really nothing else you're, you're hungering for. The, 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 in fact, you can even sort of squelch that, that hunger, that genuine hunger of your soul when this happens. And so the physical hungering that God put them through, God was using to transform them into, use it to transform the Israelites to have spiritual hungering. So he was giving them spiritual taste buds, if you will, so that they would, as it says in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And, you know, he, he was letting them, them feel that pain of their hunger, that sharp pain acutely, sharply, so that they would, be pli- they would become pliable in his hands, willing to be moved in whatever direction he might choose, flexible and, and actually happy to be molded according to God's will. Uh, but sadly, this is a sad thing, and this is, this, is, this is very sobering for us, sadly, that first generation of Israelites, they never got on board with this transformation, this inner change God wanted to do inside their lives. They never got on board with it. And that whole first generation had to die in the wilderness. And it was a a second generation that were just children at the time, children when they first were delivered. It was that second generation that could enter into the promised land. Uh, Later in the New Testament, interprets this whole situation. Book of Hebrews says in chapter 3 that they weren't able to come in because of their unbelief. 
So we got to ask ourselves this question. When we have hardships in our lives, are, are the hardships really the death sentence that they feel like they are? Is, is, is it, is, are they really a death sentence? Or is God using them to transform us from the inside out? Is he really trying to kill us like it feels so often? Or is he trying to wean us off that spiritual junk food that we've been feeding ourselves and that's slowly killing us? It's important, important to ask ourselves about how we interpret this. You know, uh, I just picked out one example to start us off. There are hundreds of, of examples where humans and God interpreted the same situation of trial very, very differently. Um, we could spend weeks going through them. I'm just going to go through a, a couple other ones. Uh, and I want to talk about Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. <clears throat> um, in, in there, it, and you might want to look more at the, even more at the context. This is Habakkuk chapter 3. If you want to look at Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 17, uh, it says, Though the fig tree does not bud... And there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive tree fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. All right, just want to make sure you understand, for an agricultural society, that was a scene of total devastation, scene of complete and total wreckage. Everything has failed, okay? And then Habakkuk writes this, Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. And he says this this beautiful picture. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So there's this scene of total devastation. And yet, somehow, the prophet Habakkuk is able to see something in the midst of the devastation that, that others couldn't see, he is somehow able to, to, to realize that God's transforming him into someone who can rejoice in God no matter what's happening. God's transforming him into someone who can rejoice in God no matter what is happening in the world. He, this picture of a deer or a, or a gazelle leaping from one inscalable cliff to the next just bounding where no one else could possibly go. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen before, but these mountain sheep or mountain goats or mountain gazelles, they can leap from one cliff to another and, and you, wouldn't even, you can't even see any footholds or anything. You're like, how do they do that? God was transforming Habakkuk into a person like that. No matter how steep the cliff, he was still able to leap joyously and triumphantly from one cliff to the next. And that's what God's trying to do in our lives as we face total devastation around us. Uh, A year ago, uh, when Pastor Jim first shared his message, um, he talked a lot from from the story of Lazarus. And, uh, you know, Jesus makes this, this statement early on. It's in chapter 11. He says, Lazarus is dead. So Lazarus died. Uh, after his family had held out hope that, that he might survive. And then both the sisters, this I wrote up here a quote from, from Martha. Martha and Mary, in the same story, both came to him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And, and isn't, isn't that so often our reaction in the midst of trials? God, if you'd been here, this, this horrible thing would have happened. And, you know, that's, that's a totally normal reaction. I don't want to guilt anybody for reacting that way. Uh, that's how I react. God, if you'd, been, if you'd just been intervening like I'd been praying for you to, this terrible thing would not have happened. That's, that's totally normal. There's no guilt in reacting that way initially. It's just that God wants to eventually take us someplace else, someplace better. And <clears throat> look, at, look at how Jesus interprets this. In, even, even before, he ra- we all know the story, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, but before the disciples and the sisters know this, this is what Jesus says in verse 14 to the disciples. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Huh? I mean, Jesus was glad he wasn't around to prevent Lazarus' death? It's, it's because Jesus had something even bigger, even better in mind that nobody could get their mind around. Nobody could have predicted or figured out. And he, he was glad, not that Lazarus was dead, and that his sisters were suffering and everybody was sorrowful about it. That's not why Jesus was glad. He was glad because there was an opportunity for the disciples to believe. That's what he was glad for. Because it's by believing that we are transformed. I'll, I'll uh, talk about this because, once again, what, what does make the difference between our interpretation of our trials and God's interpretation? What, what, what makes that difference? And I, you know, I mean, think about it. what what would have made the difference for the Israelites between how they interpreted their hunger as a death sentence and how God interpreted their hunger as an opportunity for transformation. What would have made the difference for the disciples and the sisters going into this trial? Um, what would have made what did make the difference for the prophet Habakkuk, uh, so that he was able to rejoice in the Lord in spite of all of that devastation? And I would say that the answer, is, it's very simple, and it, it's faith. That is, why, that is why the disciples, or that's why Jesus was happy. That's why he was glad that there was this opportunity for the disciples to gain a deeper, new, more real, more authentic faith. Now, you might protest at this point. How am I supposed to get this faith by which I can see the greater thing God's doing in the midst of my trials? You might even say, Andrew, I don't think you understand. But my trials this past year have been so severe and so hard that I don't think I could have seen, I I don't think I can have the faith to see God's opportunities in the midst of them. And, and, you know, really, humanly speaking, it is impossible to see God's glorious opportunities hidden behind the trials. It, it, it is, humanly speaking, impossible to see them. And, and, it, and if you are, you know, if you're one of those rare sort of Pollyanna people who's just always sees a silver lining behind every single cloud and, and you know, I, I'm sorry, sometimes that's just a denial of reality. <laughs> 
it's just a little bit delusional um, sometimes uh, if, if, if that's with what's supporting that is just your human optimism. Um, I'm not talking about human optimism here. I'm talking about something that the Holy Spirit can do inside of us to see what, what Pastor Jim has been saying for years, to see God's yes hidden behind what appears like a no. And, uh, and, and, and so how are we going to get, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to see in, through the darkness into the, the bigger opportunity God has in store for us? And, you know, I, I would suggest that the very best thing we can do is turn to the cross. Turn to the cross. I'm going to skip a couple of these verses I was going to do here. If, if you look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it's this prophecy about the cross. And it, it was a prophecy that really bewildered the Jews. It still bewilders uh, uh, many Jewish people today because they don't get, it just uh, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's, it's a prophecy about the Messiah, but something about suffering, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. The prophecy begins... In chapter 52, verse 7, like this, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. It's this beautiful beginning. You're like, oh, wow, God's going to come in. He's going to reign and he's going to restore everything. It's going to be beautiful and, oh, this is such good news. And then in the middle of the prophecy... Uh, there's this question. It's uh, verse 1 of 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord been revealed? So basically, there's this, well, who's believed it? And and if you look at the passage around this verse, you can see why this was basically hard or even impossible to believe because... If you look through, starting in verse 14, it says, His appearance, it's talking about Jesus, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and His form marred beyond human likeness. And, and I, I, I missed a word in there when I wrote that. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in his appearance, that we should desire him. Here was this suffering Messiah about whom there was nothing humanly beautiful. You know, in, in all the movies, you got this big, strong, handsome Jesus, and, uh, and, and you're like, well, but, but the prophecy actually says there was nothing about him to attract us to him. I mean, even in the movies, they even sort of make his crucifixion look good sometimes, you know. Uh, but there was nothing in him, no, nothing about him that made him Attractive. It's like God was deliberately hiding His loving kindness, His that quality about about Him that makes Him the most attractive, the most beautiful. He was hiding it behind the hideous exterior of the cross. Uh, he, you know, and and think about how ugly the cross was. It wasn't just the brutality of what was done to His body. There was the 
the unjust betrayal by a friend. There was an abandonment by his other friends. There was rejection by his own people. And, and then, of course, there was the brutal crucifixion itself. Everything about the crucifixion was ugly. It was painful. But what was God hiding behind this most awful, most hideous, most ugly of all trials? He was hiding the opportunity for the entire world to be reconciled back to him and to enjoy him forever. Underneath all that brutality, all that cruelty, all that ugliness, all that ungrateful rejection of God was the fullest, most perfect demonstration of God's love for us. I'm, I'm bringing us back to the cross because I, I think it's in the cross we can find the courage to actually look for and wait expectantly for, for God to do something beautiful out of the trials of our life. If, if God was willing to voluntarily suffer more than any other human being has suffered, not just because of the physical brutality, but he was bearing the sins of everybody in the entire world. I mean, we can't even imagine how much that cost him, how much, what great pain he absorbed into his very being to take on all of everybody's sin for all time. <clears throat> and God himself was willing to enter into our pain at the, most, at the deepest level ima- beyond imagining. And when we look at the cross, when we look at what Christ has done in the cross, then we can begin to have eyes of faith that God, in the ugliness of our lives, is actually doing something beautiful, even though it is hidden. So I want to you know, exhort us this morning that if we're going to see the opportunity, if we're going to make the most out of the year of opportunity, then we need to learn how to reinterpret our trials, reinterpret them with the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith. Not, I'm not talking about the Pollyanna optimism, everything's just great, I'm just doing fine. I'm talking about those eyes of faith by which the, the, the same knowing that just as in the cross God was hiding his greatest beauty behind the greatest ugliness, in the same way God is hiding great beauty in store for us behind great ugliness, even behind the greatest ugliness we can imagine. Now next week, I'm going to share again, and I'm going to go over, a year ago Pastor Jim gave us a fourfold prescription for how we can cooperate with him in seeing the beautiful opportunity has God, God has before us. Okay, He gave us a fourfold prescription, and next week I'm going to go over that. Uh, to get, we're all going to go over that together, and hopefully that will help us reflect on the year of opportunity, and hopefully it will help us look ahead to the theme message that Pastor Jim is going to share with us for 2010, which we're going to hear about in just a couple weeks uh, but my, my final question for each of us is, are you, am I, are we looking with the eyes of faith? Are we looking with the eyes of faith so that we can see the opportunity God has in store for us? So.
bless you, and I hope the rest of your holiday uh, weekend is wonderful and delightful. Bless you.